Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the letter of Ephesians. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, as we close out our first five series, and then next uh, Sunday, Lord's Day gathering, we'll be back in uh, the Gospel of John. But This morning, we want to focus on the church in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Here Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit beginning in verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active. And we pray that you would bless it now to our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and that it would prove to be living and active within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've ever been a coach or a teacher or maybe a team leader or a discipler, You know what it's like to have first-timers, those who are brand new to basically everything essential for being a contributing part of a successful whole with a definite mission and purpose. I've coached recreational ball here for the last few years, uh, where each new season brings a new team, and invariably it brings a player or two who struggle to grasp what's going on. They struggle to grasp the game, not because they're incapable, but because everything that we're doing is practically 
new. Uh, I start talking about diamond presses and wings on a string and dummy routes and modified 412s, and their heads begin to spin. They begin to cut donuts until, until we break it down for them. And then we model it repeatedly, and we set it within the context of a more ultimate and predetermined purpose. Right? This is what we want to be, and this is why we want to be this, and this is how we're going to get there, and what we have to do to become what this team has been gathered to be. And so let's get started on being that. Well, today, we want to close out our first five series, as I said, by considering another prayer of Paul for the church. And we want to do that because whether the church is entirely new to us or not, what we've been gathered by God to be can be more or less lost on us from time to time. Uh, We can go to church our whole lives, maybe, and yet be new, be novice to everything essential for being a contributing part of God's successful whole with its definite mission and purpose. Do we know what the church is? Do we know why it is and how we're to become what we've been gathered to be? If you went out today and someone asked you those questions, what would you answer them? What would you say to those things? Maybe more basically, where would you turn for answers yourself? Well, our text today is far from the end-all, be-all on these things, but it does set us within that context of a more ultimate purpose. For the church, it says that we've been adopted by God to be a display of the love of Jesus Christ, which, as practiced, is the height of spiritual maturity, of our missional identity, and of dependent doxology, which sounds a lot like treasuring Jesus Christ, cultivating his community, and embracing his commission, which is how we put it here every single week. So, Let's see it together as we come to Paul's prayer into verse 14, where his first request is about the essential power, the essential power for displaying Christ as a church. Paul is typically dense with his words in these couple of verses, but what he asks seems to be just as simple as that. In order for the church to be what God has saved us to be, divine power is essential. Almighty grace is prerequisite. We need our Father's strength. Now, this prayer has some critical context to it. It comes on the heels of a challenging assertion in verse 10. Uh, Paul said that the church distilled down into localized assemblies, churches, is central to the purpose that God has realized in Jesus Christ. To His eternal glory, it's the church that exists to perpetuate God's triumphant wisdom over all His enemies, heaven and earth. So our existence as a church is a gotcha kind of existence, okay? And particularly as we function properly as a church. We are the unrivaled showmanship of God existing as a forever embedded thorn in the devil's side. We're the constant proof that he and his have been confounded. The church is the victory lap of Jesus in the world. And this is challenging on at least two fronts. One, 
One, is the church less than that to you and me? Again, to God, the church is the chief beauty of His eternal purpose achieved in Jesus Christ as an irrepressible testimony to His unbeatable wisdom. (laughs) Is that what the church is to us? And second, let's just say that it is. It's then incumbent upon us not just to hear that and then move along, but to then be about the things that make us that. And for Paul, as he's thinking, what is the utmost that I can do so that the church rises to the challenge, proves meet for her glorious purpose to be this living display of the loving Christ? He says, you know, I think I'll just pray. (laughs) I think I'll just pray for the power of God. So we need to be clear on something. Any Christian or Christianity or church that marginalizes the church is injuriously amiss of the clear teaching of Scripture. And even where we own a biblical understanding of the church, we have to be careful that we don't lose the divinity of it all. That we maintain, on the other hand, we really do constantly stand in need of the power of God. Friends, biblical Christianity is not summed up in a personal decision we've made some time ago. It's not man-made at all, nor is it man-kept. Our birth and growth is not of this world. We're not talking here about mere religion as all other religions. We've not come about by naturalism. The church is not a singly human concoction of ideas and programs, nor is it such an organization that we've created or scheduled and structured. It's not a thing we do or approach like so many seminars or concerts that may fill the mind but then neglect the soul, or maybe they inspire our wonder but they neglect our lives. It's nothing that is so fatally human like that. Do we understand this? Above all, biblical churches gather in the prayerful hope of heart transformation. We gather to have Jesus consume more and more and more of us and to ask God for the power above nature that's essential to accomplishing that beauty. We've been saved and gathered to be the living temple of the triune God. And for this, before anything else, we need the triune God. So let's just begin now to notice several things here. Again, Paul's just established the centrality of the church in the purpose of God, that we be this lovely display, this lovely show of His glory in the world. And then he says, and for that reason, he bows his knees, verse 14, before the Father. He prays. And you see, he exalts the Father in verse 15 to say that he's named every family in heaven and on earth is to say that the Father is the Creator of all. Nothing has its existence outside of Him. Our Father is in control of all creation. And I think it's as a means of comforting us that Paul begins this way. 
Uh, it's a big and dangerous thing to be a people collected from all the world to manifest God and His glory in the world. Jesus did that perfectly. And the world crucified Him for it. So why would it be any different for you and me? For us? And yet Jesus knew, and He actually went on to tell Pilate that He had no authority over Him but what God had granted him, Pilate was not finally in control. And that's something of the idea, I think, here. That as the Father continues to adopt people into his family, and as together they become a new people that display his glory in the world to which we all once belonged, it will never be without two things. Two things. Trials and comforts. Trials on account of Jesus and comforts through Jesus. God is for us. God loves us. And He is in control of everything. And so Paul acknowledges this for us and then moves on to the storehouse behind the power we so essentially need. He prays, verse 16, if you look there, that God would grant us this strength. How does he put it there? He would grant us this strength according to the riches of His, you supply it, glory, which may be even richer than we think at first. You see, Paul does not restrict the storehouse here to anyone still infinite attribute of God. No, Paul goes full God here in this verse. It's not the riches of, say, God's grace. It's not the riches of God's wisdom. It's not just the riches of God's justice, His omniscience, His omnipresence. It's all of that. All of it. It's the riches of God's glory. You see? The riches of God's glory is comprehensive of all that God is as God. So, if the Lord, God, is our shepherd, we really shall not want. Everything is at our disposal. Listen now. Everything is at our disposal to make us as a church context, as a church, an increasingly lovely display of our loving Lord Jesus. Paul's aim is to assure us about the resources that are available to us for so great a purpose as you and I, we as a church, have from God. Oftentimes, it seems, a church goes prodigal. Prodigal just means wasteful. And they do it not by, not by going apostate or something along those lines, but simply by doing church in a way that's neglectful of the resources we have in our Heavenly Father. We play the short game. We take the wider path of ministry. We serve in our own strength. We emphasize earthly resources all in an effort to have our inheritance now. We don't really know what the church is or why it is or how to become that. And so because we don't realize God's purpose with us, we skirt around His power for us. Because we don't really believe in making disciples the way Jesus would have us, we substitute our resources for His, and so we emphasize what we can make on our own dime. And in none of it do we realize we're actually sitting in a pigsty. 
Until, God willing, we read a passage like this. And by God's grace, I pray, come to our collective senses. If we want to be about truly divine ministry, ministry bearing the marks of God, there is grace to return to the riches of our Father's glory. And do see that such access is all of grace for us. Paul prays that from this storehouse, God would grant us, grant us His strength. Dear ones, we receive nothing but what Jesus has bought for us by His blood. Access to the riches of God's glory for being His holy bride on earth is a gift from the bridegroom. No Christian, no minister, no church is meritorious in themselves of God's sanctifying work. And, listen, this is actually really good news. It's really good news for us because you know what? We can kind of be wretches from day to day. And because of that, we may think we're a lost cause as a church. We may think that we're cut off from God's grace. We no longer have a point of access. That thing has been shut off. And so this is saying, hey, it's all of grace. That's not true. Grace guarantees grace. (laughs) The work of Christ has certified the working of God. All we need to do, as the book says, is ask. And ask rightly. We do that, and as we move on, Paul now says the Holy Spirit, whose ministry it is, will supply essential power from the Father's riches to our inner being. Reminder then. The primary locale of God's ministry is in our inner being. Or as Paul says, clarifies as he moves along, it's in our hearts. It's in the seat of all we are and all we think and all we say and all we do. It's the place that though our outer man is wasting away, is being yet renewed day after day after day. Man, how the oldest new hearts among us, the oldest new hearts, should be the godliest. It is a poor sign of spiritual disease and possibly even morbidity if our growth in Christ has long plateaued. Are you more or less like Christ today? than a year ago? Are you more reflective of His character? Are you more reflective of His truth? More convicted about it? Are you more reflective of His heart? Are you more reflective of His loves, what He loves, what He prioritizes? Are you more reflective of His love? Please see this now. If you want to know what a church is supremely intended by God to be, please see this. 
all the Father's sovereignty, all the riches of His glory, all His strengthening power, all the Spirit's inner working has one great goal. One. And it's that Jesus will take up more of our hearts. That's amazing. It's as Paul says in Galatians 4.19 that Christ would be formed within us. It's that we would become increasingly as He is. It's that verse 17, through faith, which we'll tackle in a moment, Christ might dwell in our hearts, not in the sense of that initial indwelling when you first believed, but progressive appropriation, increasing conformity to Jesus Christ in all aspects of our lives. Beloved, we exist as a church to be a display of Jesus to one another and to the world. And equally critical to see is what lay at the height of such spiritual maturity. What is it? It's Christian love. That's the connection Paul makes in verse 17. To have Christ so dwell in our hearts is, in effect, to be rooted and grounded in what? Love. So, at the peak of godliness, listen, at the peak of godliness is not Christian knowledge. Peak of godliness, not Christian eloquence. Peak of godliness, not Christian generosity. Not even Christian faith. At least not where Christian love is absent from those things. Love as defined by Scripture and the Gospel, is what marks the church that well knows Christ in the heart. God has adopted us into His family. He's made us a family not only to display Christ, but to be most specific about it, to display the very heart of Christ. And what this first ask, this first request, teaches us then, is that to be and do that, we need nothing less than the essential power of God. All right. So, let's come now to the essential practice for displaying Christ as a church. Uh, in these next couple of verses, verses 18 and 19, the grandest meditation is set before us as a church. You know how Paul said that it's through faith through faith that Christ comes to increase His sovereignty in our hearts, and also that that's what it is to be rooted and grounded in love, well, that through faith is the instrument of our formation, our Christian formation. It implies the reception and appropriation of a certain subject. We set our minds on this subject and then we wholeheartedly receive it through faith. And the question is, what's the subject? 
It seems to me that if there were a particular subject that if set in motion by faith was absolutely sure to transform not just a person but a people into this God-glorifying manifestation of the living Christ, wouldn't we want to know what that subject is? Oh man. (laughs) Wouldn't we want to be about it from day to day? You see all the ickiness in the church today and it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Perhaps there's a hole in their heart. They're missing something. Perhaps despite their best intentions, despite the words they've shared on the subject, they've just failed to appropriate it by faith. Or perhaps they've simply failed to exposit. What? What is the grand subject? It's the boundless love of Jesus. Isn't it? It's as we believe the all-surpassing love of Jesus for us that by the gracious power of God applied by the Holy Spirit, Christ Himself advances in our hearts. We are rooted and grounded in love. And just so we don't do what people do tend to do and immediately forget how the prayer started, this again is no merely human work. Yes, there is an essential practice for us in it, but its effectiveness, the effectiveness of the practice depends entirely upon God's essential power. So, Paul, having prayed for this strength, now trusts, if you look at verse 18, that they will have this strength and having it, the comprehension of Christ's love through faith will formatively proceed. For this, beloved, we will, for a number of reasons, need divine strength. We'll need omnipotent grace for this because it's so against our natures to believe it, that we could be so loved by Christ. Oh, my goodness. Even as Christians, we think the love of Christ something like a fairy tale. can't be true. Like, there's no way. If He really knew me, that He could love me like the Bible says He does. So, so we put limitations on the love of Christ. We put up boundaries. I've sinned too much. I've sinned too long. I've sinned too awfully. My soul is dry and my life is barren and my faith is awful, awfully weak. He can't still love me. Can He? He can. And He does. Because His love is boundless. But we'll also need omnipotent grace for this because it's so against our individualism to comprehend it. Verse 18, with all the saints. You see that? Appropriating the love of Christ by faith, please, please hear it, is a community project. Being a visible part of a visible church is vital to comprehending the infinite love of Jesus. The Holy Spirit 
in the text says exactly that. But is that the context? Is that the context that first comes to mind when called upon to lay hold of, to comprehend the supernatural love of Christ? I fear, I fear many might think first of getting away from the church. <laughs> I want to know some more. I want to comprehend better the love of Christ. I can't go to the church for that. I got to get away from it. Forget gathering with one. We think of isolating ourselves in a hut somewhere not assembling like this. We think perhaps of meditating on John 3.16 on our front porch with our favorite cup of joe and stress relief music playing in our ears. Not sacrificing additional sleep to join a worshiping people who will never have it all together this side of glory. We need strength to trust the Word when it tells us this is a community of saved sinners project. We need strength to persist in it, to keep on going. We need strength to help each other fixate on it over more peripheral matters. We need strength to maintain a gospel reputation that is sincerely reputable. We need strength to hear of the great love of Christ for us and then go on to be taken captive by that love. We need strength seeing that it is inexhaustibly marvelous to avoid becoming in any degree apathetic about the love of Christ. We need strength. Oh, do we need strength to kindly extend this kind of love to one another. But then we also need omnipotent grace for this because but for that grace, it is, we might say, simply unbelievable. The love of Christ is infinite. It's boundless. It's all-surpassing. Do you see what Paul says in the verse we're called to? To know something that is Beyond knowing, beyond knowledge, right? Okay, so it's unbelievable. We need strength for this, to comprehend it. And thankfully, if any letter gives us categories for comprehension, it is Ephesians. Dear ones, we are told, beginning at the chapter 1 of the letter, we're told that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that He did that in love. So, divine love is the eternal fountain of our salvation. Salvation is to be enveloped by everlasting love. From it, it follows that He has adopted us in Christ and that thereby He has made us heirs with Christ of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. More, the Father sent Christ into the world to redeem us, to deliver us, to buy us back through His blood. He delivered us from our sins and forgave us, not just in part, but every single one of our sins that we would ever commit. 
Through Christ's blood, we've been justified before God and we have been forever reconciled to God. We've been saved and then we've also been sealed up by the Holy Spirit so that our inheritance is guaranteed. Beloved, by the love of God in Christ, we've been united to Him who sits on the throne so that we've been spared all fear of final defeat. And His love is intensified by measureless degrees, knowing at the core of our beings that we deserve absolutely none of that love. That His love is of the purest grace and the purest mercy. That we all were at one time dead in our sins, alive to the world, disciples of the devil, children of wrath, separated from Christ, and without hope in the world, but that in that condition, and no wise better, God, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ, who died to make it so. Have we considered Him who loves us through the cross and back? I mean... Among ourselves, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. We might dare even to die for a good person. But who among us would leave glory for this fallen world precisely to clothe His divinity in our humanity, live the hardest life ever lived because it was the best life ever lived, and then go on as if his life depended on it to die by being knowledgeably nailed to a tree, and not for good and righteous people, not for those who loved him, but to bear the awful justice of God in the place of those who deserved it, those who hated him, those who knew not what they'd done, those who, like you and me, had no love at all for Him. He yet experienced our death. He experienced our hell, knowing full well the worst of us. There, friends, is the love of God in Jesus Christ. A love that saves sinners. A love that captivates the saved. A love that transforms, that roots and grounds in love. A love that leads to heaven. A love that's simple enough to be loved by children, yet a love deep enough to hold the gaze of angels. A love divine, a love that we will never traverse, never lose, never exhaust, never alter. A love with breadths and lengths and heights and depths that will require eternity to fully comprehend. And verse 19, it's receiving this into our hearts by faith. Do you believe that? It's receiving this into our hearts by faith that acts to fill us with all the fullness of God. Being Christ entranced 
There is nothing more practical in the world than being Christ entranced, fixed on Him. You're that, it will serve to make you God-filled. Serves to make us, in a growing way, as Jesus perfectly was, the living temple of the triune God. As we behold this love, we, His people, become the place that God is displayed experientially in gospel love. We become a gospel culture, as the church is meant to be. A meeting place in the world between heaven and earth, between sinners and the lover of their souls. And so it's good to ask ourselves, is that what we are? as a church. If so, praise God, He gets all the glory. But if not, why not? Are we doing this essential practice in the hope of God's essential power? Look with me at verses 20 and 21. They mean to tell us that God's plan for achieving His purpose with us is fixed and unchangeable. It gives us the essential praise for displaying Christ as a church. And in the process, it also means to tell us, keep on stretching as a church to know the love of Christ. So again, Paul draws our attention to God's ability here. We're to be a people who are wholly reliant upon God. And not just for the things that come to mind here and there that we think, you know, that would be really nice and helpful, but for things that surpass even our most sanctified imaginations. Paul wants us to have maximally elevated hopes in prayer. Paul wants us to have a God-sized worldview. He wants us to pray. And having prayed, go on to confess, man, that was really small. (laughs) That was such a meager request. And then go on to ask for God's, verse 20, far more abundantly. But Paul also wants us to see that God's far more is something He always means to do, listen now, He always means to do within us and then through us. In other words, God's far more has a primary context, focus, emphasis. It's the context of all that's preceded. In our passage, it shows up unusually. It's the only time in the New Testament that we get this. In verse 21, when Paul adds, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. This essential praise is working to motivate churches to reclaim and never forfeit their God-given existence, purpose, and practice as His permanent plan A for putting His glory on Christ-centered display. I don't think it's any secret that churches have lost their way in this. That we've stopped believing in the church that we forfeit our ministry, that we hand it out to others 
because we've never really known what God intends us to be. So we need to see in the verse 21 that God has no plans for a course correction. He knows our sins. He knows our weaknesses. He knows all the things that make us really, really messy as a church. I mean, just think about it here. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay? Just at the human level, Paul is not ignorant. He's not idealistic. He knows, go read 1 Corinthians, you know, churches can be the worst. They can be the worst. And where they are, they need course corrections. And yet, they still abide as God's plan A for His glory in the world. It's strange how we move away from church because of a church's blemishes. And sometimes they are so great that we should move on, at least from that particular church. But otherwise, don't we know that while our God can get glory from perfection, He tends to get more, so long as Christ is being preached, from our many weaknesses? Does He not then get more glory for the power that makes us beautiful like Jesus, however flawed we remain? Paul says, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, what heritage, what testimony, what example are we leaving for subsequent generations about the church. What do our children believe about the church? I'm just going to tell you, usually what you, parents and others around them, have believed about the church. The question is, do we believe what the Bible says about the church? Or have we moved away from it? This praise is essential not just because it's right and not just because it turns our hearts and our hands to God, but because it sets the perpetuity of the church, the lasting nature of the church, its purpose and mission, and the plan of God, the love of Christ upon the very rock of Scripture. It says, in essence, never give up on God's plan A. Never give up on His commitment to do His great things through His Spirit in the heart of His people for His glory in Christ. Can you and I say amen to that? Because Paul does. Unbelieving friend, you've heard the saving news this morning. Will you trust it now? Will you receive Jesus by faith right now? Will you set your sinful soul in the care of one who lived to die and rise to save you from your sins, to make you a part of His people, to afford you by His own blood payment eternal life? It's our prayer as a church that you will, and that you'll also come and let us know about it. We'd love nothing more. Beloved, what we've heard this morning is a prayer Is it our prayer? Is it our prayer that 
by the power of God and to the praise of God, we'd be a true people, a true temple of God built together by the love of Christ. Is it in our collective heart to be a contributing part of God's successful whole with its definite mission and purpose? To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. How true, faithful, and helpful it is. We pray now that by Your grace and the power of Your Spirit, You would bring it to rest in our hearts that Christ Himself will take up residence in a greater capacity. We ask it for Your glory in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.